Why? Why would anyone open an art gallery? Especially someone who basically hasn't a clue as to how to do so, and has zero by way of contacts in the art world. And why on earth would they call it the Rogue Buddha? Well, that's exactly what we're about to find out in today's episode, starting in 4, 3, 2, Hello art enthusiasts and art lovers, welcome to episode 7 of Art Wonderful, the art podcast where art is a religion. I'm your host, Nicholas Harper. I'm broadcasting from my art studio deep within the Rogue Buddha Gallery. That's in the heart of the Northeast Arts District in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I want to thank you for joining me as we explore everything the arts have to offer. It's the mission of this podcast to spread the gospel of the arts, their essential value to our everyday lives, and to offer a deep dive exploration into this most mysterious of subjects. You can learn more about myself, the Rogue Buddha Gallery, this podcast, and those we have on the show by visiting us online at roguebuddha.com. Click podcast from the menu. And be sure to listen to the end of this and every episode as I'll be sharing my pick of what art event you simply can't miss this weekend should you find yourself in our neck of the woods here in the lovely Twin Cities. This is brought to you by our amazing partner we art enthusiasts simply can't live without, MPLSArt.com. And speaking of new and awesome partners supporting this podcast, I couldn't be more excited to be working with NEMA the Northeast Minneapolis Arts Association. Founded by a small collective of artists in 1995, today NEMA has over 1,000 members and is best known for coordinating ArtWorld, the largest annual open artist studio tour in the U.S. You can find out more, search hundreds of artist profiles while you search for your next art find, become a member, or become a business partner by visiting them online today at NEMA.org. That's N-E-M-M-A dot org. One of the questions I get asked the most is why I called my gallery the Rogue Buddha. And what does it mean exactly? I'll answer that question tonight, but also thought it the perfect opportunity to share the story about how the gallery really came about in the first place. It all began with a mean batch of hot buttered rum. Yep, you heard that correctly, hot buttered rum. I was about 22 years old and had a studio in the warehouse district in downtown Minneapolis. If you're familiar with Minneapolis, this is pre the North Loop and when warehouse buildings still existed prior to all being converted into condos. There was a time between being homes of manufacturing and being condos when many of these buildings were artist studios. This was also just on the cusp of when the studios began to all relocate to the Northeast neighborhood, which would eventually become known as the Minneapolis Arts District. I was subletting a studio space from another artist who occupied half the room. She, however, was not in studio very often, so I felt as though it was mine and that I could do whatever I wanted in said space. Not only did this not prove to be the case, but I learned just how much it wasn't my studio alone and just how much I couldn't do whatever it was that I wanted in it. 
As Christmas was fast approaching, two of my friends, Heidi and Nadia, both artists themselves, and I decided it would be a good idea to throw a Christmas party. But this wouldn't just be your run-of-the-mill Christmas party. No, this party would feature artwork, primarily that of Heidi and Nadia's. Thus, my first art exhibit, or something like that, as a curator, was launched. Now, the thing to keep in mind here is that this was pre-internet and pre-social media. If you wanted to get the word out, one had to rely on word of mouth and the age-old technique of flyers and posters. I think we printed maybe 50 flyers, handed them out to friends, and also made a number of phone calls to invite people over. It was my contention that if we got around 50 people coming through the studio that night, it would be a huge success. My studio was located on the fourth floor of this large warehouse building on Washington Avenue. The entire floor was a studio co-op that housed maybe 20 or 30 studios. This was one of the last studio buildings to exist in the warehouse district before succumbing to the eventual gentrification that seems to always seep in wherever a community of artists takes root. As it was an old warehouse building, it didn't have any of the modern accoutrement of today's buildings, such as a doorbell or buzzer with which to let people in from four floors up. I was thus left with a bit of a conundrum by way of letting guests in for the party. This wasn't the safest of areas at night either, and as the rest of the building would be exposed to just whoever entered, I couldn't simply prop the door open. So I figured out an ingenious, if not completely illegal, and perhaps hazardous solution. I went to the local hardware store, purchased a doorbell, a ringer, and about 200 yards of electrical wire. On the night of the party, I lower the ringer out the window, attach to the electrical wire, and secure it to the door via duct tape, along with a sign that reads something to the effect of, here for the art event, ring the bell, and we'll be with you momentarily. Can't get more fancy than that. We've arranged for a number of volunteers to be quote-unquote runners, listening for the doorbell in studio, and then dashing down the four flights of stairs to meet the guests and escort them to the correct studio. And here enters my mean batch of hot buttered rum. I thought it a good idea to offer our guests hot buttered rum, as it was an especially brisk evening outside, dipping somewheres around 20 below zero, if my recollection serves me correctly. I used an old coffee urn, filled it with rum and other necessary ingredients, and plugged it in. We've also advertised the event as BYOB and bought additional beverages, so there were sure to be enough libations all around. It didn't take long for my 100 cup coffee urn to begin heating up and as it does, it begins to infuse the room with its delicious smell. Just in time, as the first guests ring the bell and are escorted to the studio. Just as those first guests enter the studio, the bell sounds again, and another runner takes flight to let them in. The hot buttered rum continues to heat up, and the smell continues to pour out, now wafting down the hallway and into the stairwell. And, just as the magical aroma seeps out of the studio, as more and more guests arrive, they too begin to pour into the halls, no longer able to fit in my roughly 500 square foot space. 
and that's when even more people come. Somehow, word had spread that this was the event to be on this particular evening, and hundreds of people make their way up the four flights of stairs, all escorted by our now tipsy, if not exhausted, runners, and into the studio. When all is said and done, somewhere just before daylight, Heidi, Nadia, and I sit in the now cleared-out studio and regale at the success of such an amazingly attended event. I even shared in a cigarette with my compatriots, although I didn't smoke, at least not yet, not for another eight years, but that's a different story. Indeed, we were quite pleased with how the event had turned out and the bug for showing art was born. We plotted our next events. They would include poetry readings and even contemporary dance. Being recent graduates of college, where we were immersed in various art forms, we had numerous friends who were eager for opportunities to let their talent flag fly. We all dreamed big as to creating a space for these various disciplines to commingle. We left that evening as hopeful as can be. The next day around 5 p.m., I returned to the warehouse to begin cleaning the studio. As I entered the building's main door, the smell of hot buttered rum and cigarettes assaulted my nose. This was not a sign of good things to come, nor was the sign that was affixed to my studio door, where, in bold sharpie, it demanded that I come to studio number so-and-so to see the head of the co-op, and that I should do so immediately. Exclamation point, exclamation point. Upon doing so, I was greeted by the studio building co-op president, and made aware of a number of vandalized studio doors, mailboxes, and graffiti that had dotted the fourth floor. Not to mention their displeasure with the foul smell of evaporated rum and cigarettes that no doubt roamed those halls for days to come. Without ceremony, I was dismissed from being a member of the co-op and of having an art studio on the premises. That would be after, that is, I had repaired all doors, mailboxes, and removed all graffiti, which I did without haste or complaint. On a side note, my dressing down and dismissal was actually delivered with a lot less outrage as it could have been. As back in high school, I had actually been friends with the co-op president's daughter. While the daughter and I grew apart after she moved to a different state to attend college, after being booted from the co-op, I was able to learn how she was doing, and my departure from the building was one left on, if not a good note, a cordial one at least. That night, my brother helped me load the contents of my studio into the bed of his pickup truck. Securing a tarp over the top, we drove through the snow the four miles back to the middle of northeast Minneapolis, where I unloaded said contents back into the basement of my mother's home, my first art studio, was now a studio once again, at least for the next nine or ten months. It wasn't long before I began to dream about having another studio outside of my mother's basement. This time, I wanted a place not associated with other studios or pesky co-op boards that hold you to task for misguided and reckless behavior. No, I wanted a space where I could be, perhaps, a bit roguish. I began searching the newspaper classified section for rental spaces. Again, this was pre-internet. 
And that summer, I spent time dotting and combing the Northeast neighborhood, checking out available space, one after another. Now, Northeast had a lot of studio space available, but again, these spaces were mostly associated with co-ops or part of large warehouse buildings that housed dozens and even hundreds of working studios. This would be great if all I wanted to do was make art, but I had the bug. I had to host events, to share art, to create a scene, if you will. For that, I needed a certain level of obscurity. I had until this point spent most of my efforts in search of a warehouse space that didn't have any other artistic affiliations or that would provide a level of privacy from other businesses or homes. This proved more difficult as prices were much higher and too many times the person showing the space seemed a bit concerned when told I would be hosting quote-unquote art openings. Then I came across a storefront office space on the 2400 block of East Hennepin. It was seeing this decrepit storefront adorned with stained beige carpeting and low-hung office ceiling tile checkered with missing or broken bits that the idea first presented itself, that I could, in fact, go legit. I could, wait for it, open an art gallery. The idea of opening an art gallery was thrilling, if not a whole lot scary. First of all, I was beyond excited at the prospect of opening a space that could not only serve as my studio, but could house not just art, but numerous disciplines of expression, from film and dance to theater and music. The space was 2,000 square feet, and once having ripped out anything that hinted at the call center office space it had most recently served as, could easily be transformed to serve any sort of artistic expression one could conjure. But this idea of opening a multidisciplinary art gallery was equally scary because of the fact that I didn't have a clue as to what I was doing. Not only did I not have any experience with galleries or owning a business like this, I had no contacts in the art world other than my friendships with artists who found themselves in the same place I was, unable to get exhibits in galleries and relegated to primarily the hollowed walls of coffee shops and nightclubs. I didn't have any collectors or benefactors, no partners with deep pockets, or anyone who knew how to curate and present exhibitions, let alone knew how to sell art and to whom to sell it to. There also weren't any other galleries at that time that offered a blueprint that I would want to emulate, save one, Gus Lucky's, which was located clear across town. This gallery was a treasure and offered a bit of inspiration by way of how I would want to run my space. The final decision to open a gallery came in October. I met with the landlord a third time to see the space, and this time brought my friend Stefan along for his feedback. After touring the space and being given the lease to review, Stefan and I headed next door to the Quarter Note Cafe, a mid-century greasy spoon diner that served up amazing omelets and just the right boldness of dark black coffee. The location's proximity to a greasy spoon had me sold nearly immediately. The storefront was situated in a weird junction between housing that accommodated mostly college students from the University of Minnesota and large manufacturing warehouses. It was the perfect distance from anything. More importantly, it was the perfect distance from anyone that would really care too much about what was going on in the four walls of an art gallery. 
Stefan proved to be the perfect cheerleader, as he was all systems go, and wasted little time in encouraging me to go all in. We only lived once, after all, and what did I have to lose? Except my savings, with which I would self-fund the fledgling gallery. After reviewing the lease, I bravely, if not foolishly, signed my name. Come New Year's Eve 1999, a new gallery would open in Minneapolis. If only I knew what to call it. The name Rogue Buddha presented itself fairly quickly and without much hesitation. The word rogue was one that had lingered in my head for a number of years, as it had been the name of my favorite nightclub in downtown Minneapolis. That is, until the owner shot himself in the club and the rogue came to a sad and abrupt close some years earlier. As I was looking for a gallery space that artists could be free of, well, societal restraints, I pictured us as rogues of sorts. After all, isn't it one of the roles of an artist to run a bit against the grain from the rest of what society considers the norm? I also liked the idea of the one who blazes their own path, or as Tom Robbins might call it, the outlaw, where societal norms don't apply. There's also a fun play in the term, quote-unquote, rogues gallery. That's a lineup of photos of criminals inside of a police station. Again, the outlaw motif makes an appearance. The outlaw or trailblazer also seemed to work well when applied to the Buddha. After all, he had ventured away from the path his father had set for him, instead daring to venture out into the wild world, where he denied both luxury and asceticism, choosing, for a lack of a better term, the middle way. Groundbreaking indeed. At this time, I was pretty heavily ensconced in reading about and studying Buddhism, and combining the word Buddha with the word rogue, well, it just seemed to be intuitive on some subconscious level. Over time, this phraseology, rogue Buddha, would further reveal its meaning to me. It would come to represent the full spectrum of human existence and experience, from our most roguish self, that which is most worldly, to our divine, that which is our most holy or sacred self. For me, it's this spectrum or well of human experience and potential that artists draw from and use in tapping into the source or creative principle. And it's this spectrum that our work represents to the public from each of our varied perspectives, hopefully providing a new way to see and understand who and what we are and what the human experience is all about. So that's it in a nutshell, how the Rogue Buddha came to be and why on earth it's called Rogue Buddha. Five years into the gallery, I moved it to its current location on 13th Avenue in the heart of the Northeast Minneapolis Arts District. In future episodes, I'll discuss various influences that have contributed to how I've crafted the gallery experience and how I curate and decide on events and exhibition programming. And speaking of exhibition programming, there's a number of great events happening this weekend. Might I recommend Painting Minnesota, an evening of visualizing Minnesota through the eyes of 12 artists. Opening Saturday, March 14th from 6 until 9 p.m. at Douglas Flanders & Associates. That's at 818 West Lake Street, Minneapolis. 
See Minnesota through the artist's lens. Enjoy this one-night show featuring artistic visions from artists Todd Cleric, Mike Walton, Joseph Thoreau, and more. You can find out more details about this exhibit, again, opening Saturday, March 14th at Douglas Flanders, and all of the wonderful art events taking place this weekend at mplsart.com. That's mplsart.com. They have a passion for sharing the talents of our fair Twin Cities like none other, and their directory of galleries and events, it's unsurpassed. So be sure to check out mplsart.com. And that's a wrap for this episode of Art Wonderful, coming to you from deep inside the Rogue Buddha Gallery. I want to thank you for joining me, and I hope you do so again and often. Until next time, remember, the best life is the creative life, and the best self is the artistic self. Cheers. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Addendum. You remember that cool mid-century greasy spoon next to the Rogue Buddha Gallery? Well... About three months into the gallery, the owner of the diner got sick, and they ended up closing. A few months later, a Subway restaurant opened its doors, and the smell of black coffee and pancakes that had seeped into the gallery space was replaced by the smell of Italian herb and cheese. And on Sundays, I was treated to a special combination of smells, as the Chinese church, located on the other side of the gallery, hosted authentic Chinese dinner after Mass. This continued for a couple of years, until the church moved out and a quote-unquote artist co-op moved in, but strangely was never open. The smells from the basement were, in fact, replaced by the yells of clientele as they were spanked, beat, and whipped in what turned out to be a clandestine dominatrix studio. But that story is for another episode. Cheers. Cheers.